Okay, wait just a minute. You might very well be saying right about now. Did this happen once or twice? This whole business about Jesus giving a talk to his disciples and then floating up into the sky like a hot air balloon. Because it sure sounds like we heard it two times. First in the book of Acts and then just now in the gospel of Luke. So did he like come back down for a while in between? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) No. The ascension is a one-time deal, a singular event. But we did hear about it twice this morning in two slightly different tellings, both from the same author. You may know that the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts are written by the same person. And it turns out that that person, Luke, really loved the story of Jesus's ascension, or at least felt it was profoundly important, important enough to tell it twice. The first telling is the very end of the Gospel of Luke. It's how this Gospel brings the story of Jesus's life to a close. And I think it certainly makes sense as an ending. It sort of brings everything full circle. In Jesus, the God of all creation came down to earth lived and loved and taught and made a whole bunch of powerful people deeply uncomfortable. He died at the hands of the authorities and descended to the dead. He rose from the dead and encountered his disciples a few more times and then returned to where he came from. It's one great big circle, right? It's like that beautiful passage from the prophet Isaiah. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they've watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Jesus is that word sent from God and now returning to God, having accomplished what he came to do. The ascension is a pretty darn good ending to the story. You can see why Luke finishes his gospel right there. But here's the thing, and maybe this is why he needed to tell it twice. For Luke, it may be the ending of one story, but it's also the beginning of another. It's the end of the story of Jesus's life and ministry as an individual person tromping around first century Galilee. And it is the beginning of the story of Jesus's life and ministry on a much wider stage. Jesus' work of healing and teaching and forgiving and blessing and renewing isn't over. In fact, it's just beginning, and now it will be carried out by Jesus' followers. New Testament scholar Greg Carey says it well. Jesus' ascension does not take him to some remote heavenly dwelling, hopefully to be discovered by the web telescope. According to Luke, Jesus' ascension fills the church with life and allows his ministry to flourish in ways it could not when restricted to one embodied individual. So this singular story of Jesus ascending is really the crucial hinge between the two chapters of the great story, between the relatively short chapter of Jesus' life and ministry years on earth and the much longer and still ongoing one of Jesus' work through the church. It's a story worth telling twice. In the second version, the one that starts the book of Acts, the sense of expectation is palpable. 
Jesus has risen from the dead and appeared several times to his followers over a period of 40 days. It's clearly a precious and amazing time. The disciples never know when Jesus is going to suddenly materialize through a door and ask for a snack. But there's a clear sense in the air that this isn't the long-term plan. God has something else in store. Jesus tells the disciples that God's promise is soon to be fulfilled. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. I'm not sure they had any idea just what that was all about, but it was clear things were soon to change. And then suddenly one day, they do. The disciples ask Jesus if this is finally the time when he's going to do what they had always hoped a Messiah would do, defeat their enemies and bring about a new era of peace. And Jesus gives them a few last words, that it's not for them to know the times or the periods, that power will come upon them, and that they'll be his witnesses, first in the city where they are right now, Jerusalem, and in the region that they come from, Judea, and in that neighboring area full of people they tend to think of as enemies, Samaria, and then far beyond their imagining throughout the whole world. And then like that, he's gone, like rain that has evaporated and returned to the sky. As I said already, it's a monumental event. In lots of churches today, I think this actually sort of gets skipped over or shortchanged, and it shouldn't. It's the start of Jesus's ministry through his followers. It's the beginning of the great multiplication of the work of this one individual that's still ongoing today. It's a really big deal. But did you notice what happens right afterward? Not very much. The disciples get chastised by a couple of angels for craning their necks up and watching the clouds, which doesn't really seem fair, does it? I mean, wouldn't you be looking up if you'd just seen what they had? They walk the couple of kilometers back to the place they're staying. They go back to the room. And they wait. I don't know about you, but I imagine the story maybe being a bit snappier at this point. Jesus zooms up into heaven, and before his feet have vanished into the clouds, a big gust of wind blows across the landscape, and suddenly the disciples are filled with the power Jesus was talking about, ready for their mission, ready for action, ready to march beyond everything they've known to bring his message to the ends of the earth. We might imagine things would move quickly at this really dramatic point, but that's not how the story goes. Pentecost will come, the Holy Spirit will show up and fill Jesus' followers with courage and purpose and direction. The action will pick up and they're going to have plenty to do, but not yet. In fact, at this point in the story, they have just one task. The church's very first assignment is to wait. It's easy to miss, but the more I think about that, the more important I think it is. I mean, Jesus could have said to his disciples, you've been with me these past years, you've seen what this ministry is all about, so you're on your own now, get busy. He could have given them a detailed list of tasks. Here's the map of the region. Here's the list of who's going where. Here's your five-year strategic plan. He could have laid it all out or told them to get work planning. 
but instead he told them to wait. I don't know for sure, of course, but I'm kind of guessing the disciples might have preferred the strategic plan. I imagine most of us would, because waiting has never been popular. It's uncomfortable. It's unsettling. Wait, says the doctor with the test to be analyzed. Wait, says the professor with the paper to be graded. Wait, says the population office with the papers to be examined. And we grumble and we hunt for distractions because we would rather do something, anything, than be told we just need to wait. Waiting has never been popular, I'm sure, and yet it is the first assignment given to the church. I wonder if the story is told this way, to show the disciples, and really all of us too, what a faithful life actually looks like. Yes, moments of clarity and insight may come, moments when God's hand is easy to spot and the way forward seems obvious and apparent. And then there are other times, often lots of them, and sometimes lasting a good long while, when the way is less clear, when we aren't sure where to go or when to go there, when practically all we can do is wait for the leading of the Spirit. Waiting, this story reminds us, is actually an important part of a faithful life. Sometimes it is just what we are called to do. And our story actually gives quite a beautiful picture of what that sort of faithful waiting might look like. To begin with, it is expectant. It's hopeful. The disciples aren't just killing time and scrolling their phones back in Jerusalem. No, they're waiting with the expectation that God is going to act, that the promises will be kept, that they will ultimately be led where they need to go when the time is right. And what's more, the waiting is communal. They don't do it alone. Did you notice that? Jesus' followers don't all slink off to their individual homes and stew and worry by themselves. No, they stay together. They support one another. They worship and pray as a community. Robert Wall says it this way, waiting for God to act is a community project. Waiting with others is an act of solidarity with friends. The apostles do not scatter and go their separate ways to await a private spirit-filling or personal experience of divine faithfulness. They were joined together in a specific place to wait God's action on them all. Waiting for God is a community project. We don't always think of it that way, do we? I think we often keep our worries to ourselves. We turn them over and over on our own. But the picture here is different. Here the church waits together for God to act. Here we wait together for the healing of a loved one. We wait together for God's direction in a friend's life. We wait together for God to show us what is next for our community. We don't scatter when we can't see the way forward. We wait in solidarity with one another. Which means it matters that you are here today. Whether you are rejoicing at the clarity of God's presence in your life right now or wishing that things would get clearer, you are in the right place. 
because here we are called to support one another, to pray together, to tell the story of the God who has all sorts of extraordinary purposes for ordinary people like you and me. Here we wait with expectation, trusting that God is not finished, that the God who raised Jesus will act again. The disciples are going to get lots of other tasks, witnessing to the life they have experienced in Jesus, teaching and healing and serving and seeking justice and standing up for those left outside. We are called to many things, yes. But before all that, our first assignment, and it is one that we do return to again and again, is to wait for the Spirit with hope. Friends, thank God we do it together. Amen.